thought I'd say a few words about negotiating with the Russians, but I, I, the program has gone on, so I'll try to be short and just make the essential points. I guess I've spent as much time negotiating with Russians, at least sitting across the table from them, either negotiating or eating with them or dining or talking, listening to music or ballet or God knows what, than any other American. I've been at it longer than any others. Uh, but it all happened really by happenstance, by accident. It certainly wasn't planned, and it was, really was an accident. The first time I negotiated with a Russian was certainly an accident. I was in Berlin. I'd completed a report on the po politics and economy of Germany, and for two weeks I didn't have anything to do. And I ran into a classmate of mine, and he didn't have anything to do for the next two weeks. So we looked at a map of Europe and decided that rather than go to a capital, we'd find the place that had the lowest population. And we found a great big lake in northern Finland called Lake Inuri. And we got onto a boat and went to Riga and then to Helsinki and then took the train as far as it would go and then the bus as far as it would go. And then we started walking north. We finally got to the lake and the fish warden of northern Finland took us to the northeast corner of the lake in his boat. Then we got off and started walking north up to the Arctic Ocean. And after three days of rain, we were thoroughly lost. And then we saw a fisherman on a lake. And we hailed him, and he came to the edge of the lake, and we went down to talk to him. And he asked us in German whether we knew where we were. We said, no, we're lost. That We wanted to find out from you where we were. And he said, well, you're in the USSR, and you oughtn't to be here, and you ought to leave fast. And we said, we don't know how. And he said, well, there's a trail over there that leads to the Patsyoki River, which is the boundary with Finland. And if you were, if I were you, I'd run. And so the first negotiation with the Russians was wholly helpful. We ran as fast as we could go. <laughs> but then after that, I, I went back to New York and showed this report that I'd written about Germany to Mr. Clarence Dillon, who was, I think, really the brightest and most brilliant investment banker in Washington and New York at the time. And uh, he was impressed by it because it said the opposite of what most people had said. It said that anybody who invested money at that time in Germany ought to have his, ought to have his head examined. The politics of Germany were such and the political structure so weak that it wouldn't stand up against any kind of an economic recession. But he thought that was different, so he hired me to be his personal representative, so I spent a number of years in Wall Street during the Great Depression. I guess the Wall Street crash occurred just two weeks after I started working there. And then there was wave after wave of this depression. But we did better than most, and I didn't do that badly. So that by the year 37, I suddenly took a, decided we could take a vacation. So Phyllis and I went to Germany and saw Mr. Hitler and listened to Mr. Hitler. And I got deeply disturbed by what was going on, not only in Germany, but what seemed to be going on in the USSR, seemed to be going on in the Far East, in Japan, and in Manchuria. So that uh, I decided to heck with this Wall Street business. I would leave Dillon Reed and Company and go to Harvard, where I thought people, I could gain wisdom if I could find it any place. And that was partly correct, but only partly correct. But in any case, I absorbed as much as I could of sociology and philosophy, and even constitutional law and, and international law. And uh, 
But I couldn't resist the temptation to keep my fingers out of into business ventures of one kind or another. So I hung out my shingle as a as an entre, as a financial expert, did reorganizations and mergers and things of that kind, which did quite well. But it did ruin my health. I had too much work, so I went back to Dillon Reed and Company. But then Jim Forrestal, one of my partners there, was asked to go to Washington and uh, work for Mr. Franklin Delano Russell in the White House. And he went down there and immediately asked me to come down and join him. So I appeared in Washington in 1940 and have really never left since and haven't really regretted that. But it's been kind of an in and out career. Uh, during the war, you know, it was extremely interesting. You know, it was an opportunity for young men to, ri to young men to rise and take responsibility at an early age. So that uh, by the end of the war, I'd done really quite a lot of things. I ended up being the vice chairman of a thing called the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, which did the detailed investigation of the effects of the nuclear weapons at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I had about 500 engineers and scientists working for me on that project. And it was the only really solid study on that subject anybody had done. And as a result of that, I got to know many of the physicists who you have met here. Ed Teller became a close friend of mine as a result of that. But uh, having done that, then what do you do? At 46, we'd written the report. And so I was on my way back to Wall Street again. And then Will Clayton, whom I admired more than any person in Washington at the time, asked me to work in the State Department. So I said, to heck with it, I'll stay in Washington. So I stayed in Washington and had the most exciting years there in the post-war period when we really made an enormous contribution to developing the methods and standards by which the post-war re recovery was made possible. But um, then by 1953, Mr. Eisenhower came in, and I, being a Democrat, was well, they didn't fire me right away. They left me in for a period of time. And uh, I managed to contribute to writing one of Mr. Eisenhower's speeches, I think the one that was the, his most successful, called the Chances for Peace, which resulted, I believe, in the Korean armistice and also in the Austrian state treaty. But having then McCarthy denounced me as being, not for being a communist, even he didn't believe that, but he denounced me for being nothing more than a Wall Street operator and totally unfit for the job I was in. So out I was on my tail again. But uh, and later in that administration, one of my friends, Fred Eaton, was handling the Eight Nation the, our team, the U.S. team, on the Eight Nation Disarmament Conference in Geneva and asked me to help him and be an advisor. So I did that, and I was much, that was an absolutely fascinating exercise. It was um, perfectly clear that the Russians were running rings around us on the propaganda front. Their slogan was total and complete disarmament. They had no program to get there, but they were winning hands down in propaganda. So we cooked up the idea of our slogan would be complete phased disarmament. And that was much better than their slogan. And they began losing support all around the world on their slogan. And so they left the negotiations and just walked out of the negotiations, which didn't do them any good at all. 
But it impressed me with the contrast between what the propaganda element and the serious element of trying to work some of these things out with respect to arms control. In 63, I wrote a paper on the subject of just bilateral negotiations between the Soviet Union and ourselves, that this was the better way than doing it, to do it, doing it rather than going at it the multilateral approach. McNamara read it, and he approved of it, and President Johnson approved of it, so we tried to get that done. We almost got it done in 68, but then the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia and the whole thing fell on its face. But then later when um, Mr. Nixon came in, I, well, when Kennedy came in, I was Secretary of the Navy, did lots of other things. But then later when Mr. Nixon came in, he asked me to head the, the um, team or to be a member of the SALT team. And uh, I did that with great pleasure and great interest. And we finally, that resulted in, you know, the episode, I think it's fairly well known of the walk in the woods when Kwiatkowski and I went off together and tried to cut through all the bureaucratic nonsense and come up with a package of mutual concessions on both sides, which should, we thought, be acceptable to both of our governments. The Soviets turned it down first, but our government turned it down too. But I think it really was a constructive step in the long course of arms negotiations. But that one didn't work. It was ahead of its day. But then later we got into the, the uh, INF negotiations. And there, after much work, uh, that uh, finally worked out. The two great men decided that they'd have a meeting of so-called experts during the night and that I would head the U.S. arms control team and that Marshal Ekremeyev would hold, head the Soviet team. And we argued it until about 2 o'clock in the morning when Ekremeyev rose from his side of the table and said, I'm leaving. And I thought the whole thing had ended in disaster. Uh, but he said, no, I'm coming back at 3 o'clock. So I went off to woke Mr. Schultz up and he told me to go ahead and follow the course that I thought was the right course and was in fact following. And then when Akromeyev came back, he was prepared, he'd gotten instructions that he could concede the main point that I was arguing about. I was arguing for that what we needed were not the 50% category by category that he was talking about, but we needed unequal reductions where the destabilizing systems were reduced more than the stabilizing systems. But we wanted to end up with equal end point. So the idea of unequal reductions to an equal end point, he finally accepted. And as a result of that, we made a lot of progress and got five or six of the main points worked out by 6.30 in the morning. That was a long and tough day. But, uh, you know, it took some months after that to get the INF Treaty finally to work, worked out. We finally got it signed last December. We finally got it, the instruments of ratification exchanged here at the last summit we were at in Moscow just uh, six weeks ago. And uh, now we're working hard on the, trying to get this start agreement, if we can, during this administration. I think the problems involved are we understand pretty well what they are, but it's going to require quite a lot of movement on their side as well as on ours in order to button that one up during this administration. But that's what we're trying to do. 
But in the meantime, of course, a lot has been going on in, in Moscow, and you've all read about the Party Congress, and uh, it's still, I think, too early to understand exactly what's going on. Certainly, Mr. Gorbachev's idea of glasnost, increased openness, is not just an idea that's come to pass. These things that are being said and done and published in the Soviet Union are quite different than they've ever been before. It's quite a big change. But then the next question as to whether this will really lead to the restructuring of their society and of their uh, economic structure, that is much harder to see. I frankly can't see that they have yet addressed the practical measures that I would think would be necessary in order to get from here, from there to here. But let me just review for some of you young folks some of the, the lessons that I would hope you would take from this uh, tour, a short tour of negotiating with the Russian. The first one is the idea of continuing one's education during one's adult life. Certainly, I didn't know a thing about Russia when I, when I graduated from college. But I kept reading Russian literature and uh, learning something about Russian art, music, and so forth and so on. And uh, you know, you, you, I, I didn't know anything about nuclear physics, but by gosh, I learned from Ed Teller and from Oppenheimer and from others a great deal about nuclear physics until I finally think I understood it. And I really didn't know anything about military tactics or strategy, but you know, you work at it for a period of time and you learn something about it. But my point is that it's the, just adding to one's knowledge is the important thing. The second thing is that <clears throat> I would recommend that you head into problems rather than away from them. You know, I guess one of our participants made this point the other day. You better deal with a baseball game that's going on rather than worrying about some future baseball game. Uh, but in order to do that, you've got to step up and head into it. And secondly, and thirdly, I guess, one thing to avoid in all circumstances is to avoid kidding yourself about the facts. Keep your mind open, but religiously try to keep your in mind the facts as honestly and as accurately as you can, and don't let yourself be budget away from those. If you once see that 2 plus 2 it equals 4, it doesn't equal 6 or 8 or 10 or some other number. So that uh, don't let yourself be hoodwinked by what seems to be popular unwisdom. And finally, uh, it's, you know, don't be afraid to be wrong. You know, the whole business of policy is, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you could put it all in a computer if it weren't, if you had adequate information. But the, you have to make policy on the basis of, of inadequate information, where you know the information is adequate, inadequate. But you've got to make it within a given period. You've got to make decisions within a given time period. You've only got so much time. So you make them as best you can. What you get paid for is for making fewer errors, not because you don't make any errors, but just you make fewer errors than you would have than you would have made if you'd taken made the opposite decisions or if you'd made no decision at all. Thank you.